0: Well, I invite you to turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 13 through 18 tonight and consider those same verses. First Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, before we read it and look at it, let's pray together. Our gracious God, we are thankful that you have completely revamped death, that you have come into this world to overturn death as the wages of sin, and to give eternal life in its place through faith in your Son. And as we look at the implications of this and what it means for us as believers regarding our mourning, our grieving, et cetera, when loved ones die. We pray that you would encourage us, you'd teach us things maybe we didn't know and remind us a lot of the things that we already know, but we just need to keep in focus. And We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All First right, Thessalonians 4 at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this evening. Beloved congregation of hope and everyone uh, listening tonight, there are some uh, uh, doctrinal axes that this passage can be used to grind regarding millennial views and uh, rapture views, etc., which I'll leave to your uh, entertainment or study, careful study. Uh, But what I find fascinating about this passage is the pastoral flavor that the Apostle Paul um, has added to it. He's very concerned about these dear young Christians and how they're approaching death, because some of these Thessalonian believers were dying after they had come to faith, and They're becoming alarmed, and even their grieving is not going as Paul would have liked it to have gone. So in a pastoral note, in order to encourage them, remember how he ends it, comfort one another with these words, encourage one another with these words, uh, he gives them some information regarding death. The second coming of Christ was an event viewed by the Thessalonian Christians as imminent, soon to come, uh, certainly in their lifetime. And so after they had come to faith, when some of them were dying, they started to conclude the people who have died before Jesus came again are missing out. They won't be part of his kingdom. They might not even receive eternal life. What happens to them when they die? Or do do we have to, in their minds, they thought we have to live all the way until Jesus comes again. If we don't make it, we are stuck. We don't have the benefits of Christ. That was something of what they're thinking uh, would have been. And so this tempted them to approach funerals then of their fellow believers with hopelessness and despair. We don't know how to process this. And so Paul, ever the pastor and the lover of God's people, uh, writes to them to explain to them how to view the passing away of believers before Christ comes again. And sometimes we can find ourselves in the same position as well. I'm guessing for most of us, we've crossed this bridge a thousand times at funerals and through lectures and through sermons, etc. It's a good reminder, of course, of how we're called to grieve and even approach a funeral of a fellow believer uh, when that day comes. Uh, We can wonder, uh, will we ever see them again? What will that look like? If they die before Christ comes and I die before Christ comes, are we going to miss out on anything or will we get to participate in the last day, that triumphant and glorious day? So Paul writes in verse 13, if you notice, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. Now, negatively, this word uninformed, it's not knowing, unaware, it's actually got a double negative in there. So it's a powerful uh, thing he's saying, or we could put it positively. We very much want you to be aware of something. And so what he does is he informs them of some doctrinal truths. Now I don't have to tell you uh, as uh, members of Hope Church how important doctrine is. And what Paul does, he ends with a note of comfort and encouragement to comfort one another. But before then, what does he do? He just teaches on what the last day is going to look like. He just writes out some doctrinal statements about how this is going to go, some order of events you could argue about the last day. And so Christian doctrine is very important. What we believe is very important. And we need to believe certain things in order to be comforted, even in uh, the midst of death. So the Holy Spirit provides this teaching and information so that our lives can be changed by it, particularly when it comes to mourning uh, a, a, a beloved brother or sister in Christ who has passed away. So this information changes how we grieve. He calls us to grieve differently than unbelievers. Catch that. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He doesn't want the Thessalonians, he doesn't want any Christians to be grieving as though we had no hope. And the word grieve is literally to cause severe mental or emotional distress or pain of mind and spirit. So I want to clarify here what Paul isn't addressing necessarily in this passage, although you could argue it's a, uh, it, it, it could be a spinoff of it. He's not saying, hey, when you're a Christian and you go to a funeral, you shouldn't cry and you should dress in some you know, spring Easter outfit that's brightly colored and <laughs> brings everybody joy, et cetera. He's not saying that. He's not saying that when you... So when we go to a funeral as Christians, outwardly, our grieving might look identical to those who don't know the Lord. We'll be using just as many Kleenexes, shed just as many tears, and have that uh, uh, sorrow about us. We're, we're sad in that way. Uh, the grieving process for believers oftentimes there'll be no difference in length between how a believer grieves and how a uh, uh, non-Christian grieves. Usually that first year is very difficult, right? Hey, we buried this person and now we have our first Christmas without them, our first Father's Day, Mother's Day, our first Thanksgiving without them, et cetera. He's not talking about, hey, if you're a believer, you should be able to get over the death of a fellow believer instantly. Now, there's some people who think that or teach that. It's just not appropriate. That's not what Paul's talking about inwardly is where he's going. Inwardly, there is a vast difference between how a Christian grieves and how a non-Christian grieves. We have hope. We can have hope. They have no reason to hope. We can weep externally. That doesn't mean we're hopeless. But what will take place in our attitudes and our hearts, which should take place, is an attitude which says, I don't have to despair. This is not the end. There is more to come we have not reached the final chapter yet. We will one day turn that page and we will be at the last chapter and it will be incredible. So this is just pushing the pause button on their earthly life until Jesus comes again. Now that changes our internal attitude then. And regarding the world's outlook at funerals and how sort of uh, different and incredible this teaching is, Leon Morris wrote this about the world, how the world viewed funerals in Paul's day. Nowhere outside Christianity do we find at this period any widespread view of a worthwhile life beyond the grave. Undoubtedly, some of the philosophers had an idea of a life beyond the grave, but they did not glory in it. And in any case, theirs was the lofty view of the few. Nowhere did it penetrate to the beliefs of ordinary people. The same might be said about the mystery religions. Sometimes they speak of a life beyond the grave for the initiates, but they do not have the ringing certainty of the Christians. The typical attitude of the ancient world to death was one of utter hopelessness. And then he goes on to quote a second century letter written from a friend to a friend to illustrate the hopelessness of non-Christian funerals. Irene to Teonophorus and Phila. I'm sure I butchered those names. Good comfort. I am as sorry and weep over the departed one as I wept for Didymus, and all things whatsoever were fitting I have done. But nevertheless, against such things, death, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort ye one another. How do you comfort somebody if you can't do anything against death? There is no comfort. But again, that's the world's best effort at trying to comfort themselves in the face of death. So there's a black and white difference between how Christians approach death and how non-Christians approach death. Since non-Christians have no hope and and are without God in the world, the end of life is for them something that they can't explain, they can have no certainty about. And at funerals they can wax eloquent about and talk about how amazing the person's life was, how they're in a better spot, but they have no basis for it. It's just good positive speak maybe to encourage the people there, but they have no basis for any hope about a better future for the person. But for a Christian, we should be hopeful. Or let me put it this way, we shouldn't grieve as those who have no hope at funerals, because for four reasons. Our loved ones are taking a nap. Jesus' death and resurrection guarantees the resurrection of every saint who has died. Third, all sleeping saints will be resurrected first when Jesus comes. And then finally, we will be with our, lo- our loved ones and with the Lord. So those three things, very basic. We're just pretty much just stole the language of the passage. <laughs> Let's walk through it. So why can we have hope at a funeral? Because number one, our loved ones are just taking a nap. Take a look at verse 13, if you would. We, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul says, I'm going to focus on that word, asleep. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died or fallen asleep. Talking about believers in the Lord's Supper who uh, drank unworthily. 1 Corinthians 15.6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15.20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. John 11, 11, our, Lazar, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him, Jesus said. And then Matthew 27, 52, the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Why does scripture speak of saints who have fallen asleep? Because the view of a saint who's fallen asleep is one who's now taking a nap, as it were. They are down for the count. They will be sleeping for a while but what always happens after you take a nap? You get up. As in taking a nap isn't the end of the world. When you fall asleep, you get up when the time is right and when the next day comes. And so there's hope in that language that, hey, believers have fallen asleep, but the day will come when they will rise again. And our souls after death, after we, while we're going to sleep, uh, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. So so for those who have died and gone on, they are asleep as it were their bodies, but their souls and spirits have gone to be with the Lord in paradise. And Paul talked about departing to be with Christ for that is far better in Philippians 1. So again, he's talking about leaving this world into a great place. And 2 Corinthians 5:8, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So the portrait of a believer who has died is someone who's sleeping and has gone to be with the Lord in an amazing place in his presence. Not the full new heavens and earth yet, but gone to be with the Lord without a body, but in soul and in spirit. So they sleep, they are lifeless, their bodies are buried, they'll start decomposing, et cetera. All that uh, is is indeed true, but we're just taking a nap. And I, I heard someone put it like this. To me, this has been helpful None of us would despair if a loved one of ours went and said, hey, I'm going to take a nap. We'd all say, awesome, (laughs) maybe I'll take one too. And we would assume that we'll see them again. Oh, they're just going to bed for the night, okay? We'll see them in the morning, generally speaking. And so even the language that's used here, how this is translated, captures something that none of us should approach a funeral when a a dear one dies. Our spouse, a child parent, right? A a sibling in Christ in the church, a dear friend. None of us should despair in the sense that, oh, this is the end. No, they're they're asleep. And there will come a day when they will be awake again, and we will be with them, and we can look forward to that. So that's why we don't mourn as those who are hopeless when we go to the funeral of a fellow believer. The second reason we can have hope at a funeral is that Jesus' death and resurrection guarantees the resurrection of every saint who has died. Uh, Verse 14, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, this is a big note of encouragement. I want to highlight one word in here, a preposition, through Jesus. It can be translated through or on account of. Some translation have it as in Jesus, but through or on account of would be a better translation. What Paul is saying is this, on account of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, every one of us who dies and goes to be with the Lord before Jesus' second coming will be raised again, guaranteed. Everyone who believes in Jesus on account of Jesus' death and resurrection will be resurrected on the last day. So our relationship with Jesus secures that resurrection. The passage brings us to the reality of being united with Jesus so that everything he underwent we undergo. He died and was raised. We will die, Lord willing, uh, unless Christ comes first, and then we will also be raised. Faith in Jesus, believing in Jesus, guarantees that reality. Now our Lord Jesus experienced death. He went through death. He did this for our sake. The eternally begotten Son of God did not have any reason to come into this world to experience death other than that we might be safe through it. It's not as though God was lacking anything before Jesus came. And so God did this for his glory and for our salvation. So Jesus Christ, on account of his death and on account of his resurrection, and his resurrection assumes what? That death couldn't keep him. The wages of sin is death. If he comes out of that grave, then he has no sin. Death has no claim on him. God, as it were, is obligated to raise his son up because he never sinned. So Jesus has done all of that for us. It's on account of Jesus that every one of us who believes in Jesus has a guaranteed resurrection to glory on the last day. Beloved, let me, let me put it this way. If Jesus didn't come into this world and die in our place and be raised again, then every one of us could be guaranteed to be raised to eternal destruction. Guaranteed. According to the strict justice of God, perfectly fair, we would get what we deserve. It's through Jesus that this is even possible. It's through his work, his obedience, his death, his resurrection, God's redemptive work that any of us can go to a funeral and even be the ones for whom the funeral is with any hope at all. Take Jesus out of the equation, out of this passage, we're hopeless put him in there and every one of us has hope, certainty on account of his work. And I want to highlight that because without Christ, this isn't possible. And anyone who doesn't have Christ, there is no reason to be hopeful at their funeral. There's no reason to even approach death with any hope if you don't have Jesus Christ. For anyone who's outside of Christ or who doesn't have Christ, a funeral is the most miserable experience in the world for which there are no answers. The world provides nothing. There is nothing. It's the end. And after the end, it gets way worse. But through Jesus Christ, we can go to a funeral. We can be the one at the funeral who's dead. And we have an incredible hope that one day we will rise again, not to be in the judgment condemned, but vindicated and glorified. The third reason we can have hope is that all sleeping saints will be resurrected first when Jesus comes. Now, this would have struck the Thessalonians as rather interesting. So verses 15 to 16, This we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, by the way, that was none of them, right? (laughs) None of them made it. Uh, Will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now this is fascinating. They were scared that those who had died before Christ came back again wouldn't be able to participate, or they'd have limited participation, or maybe they'd miss out altogether on the rapture, whatever their views were. And Paul says, actually, when that day comes, they're going to be first in line. And everybody who's alive when Jesus comes, they'll be second in line, as it were. Not lesser participants, but they'll be watching this incredible resurrection of already dead saints coming out. They're going to go first, which is quite a thought. So it would have comforted every one of the Thessalonians who thought, are they going to miss out? Paul says, no, actually, they'll be front and center. They won't miss out on anything. In fact, you'd almost want to say, hey, I I don't want to wait till the Lord comes again. Take me, Lord, because I'd love to be part of that incredible group that comes out of the grave and goes uh, first. Notice when Christ comes, there's a few distinct sounds that accompany is coming that Paul heaps up. Notice first the cry of command. Leon Morris says this about that. The word is found often. It is the cry made by the ship's master to his rowers, by a military officer to his soldiers, or by a hunter to his hounds, or by a charioteer to his horses. When used of military or naval personnel, it was a battle cry. In most places, then, it denotes a loud, authoritative cry, often uttered in the thick of great excitement. It is not said by whom the shout will be uttered, but the probability is that it is the Lord. John 5, a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. So when this great day happens that the Thessalonians were worried about, it will start with a cry of command that will be there. And it's the cry of someone. Did you catch all the uses of it? The person who issued the command was in charge. They come with authority. And so when Jesus comes on this last day, he's not coming to say, hey, I, I hope we can get these people resurrected. I hope we can pull this off. No, he's coming as one who's already defeated death. And he's coming to a whole bunch of dead people in the ground who are going to be resurrected. And he offers this cry of command as the authoritative king of kings and lord of lords. And bodies will just come out and they will be glorious like his own body. It'll be amazing. He comes as one who is unapologetically in charge. And then we have the voice of the archangel that is going to speak. We're going to hear the mighty voice of an archangel. And then we're going to hear the sound of the trumpet of God. Now This is language, you could argue, that goes back to the walls of Jericho. The, the trumpets sound, the people shout, the walls fall down. In Isaiah 27, 13, and that day a great trumpet will be blown. And those who are lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain of Jerusalem. What happens when these trumpets blow? God's coming to announce his work. And on that day, beloved, a day that was scaring the believers in Paul's day, that can be frightful for us one thing we can rest in is this. When God comes again, when Christ comes again, he's not coming willy-nilly. He's not coming half-heartedly. He's not coming unsure of what he can accomplish. He's been to the grave. He's been raised out of it. He who had the power of death has been conquered. And he's showing up to do whatever he wants to do on that day. And there is nobody who can stop him. And what does he come to do on that day? Raise up his people. Give them brand new life a life that will last forever in his presence. Think of what honor is bestowed on those saints then who go before and don't make it till the coming of the Lord. Think if you're the Thessalonians, hey, will they miss out? <laughs> You'd be thinking, no. Actually, they're going to be kind of a centerpiece for a while <laughs> when their bodies come out and everybody who's alive says, look at, look at this, this is amazing. So when our fellow believers die, And they don't make it to the coming of the Lord, which I'm assuming is going to be all of us, unless the Lord comes again. He may come tomorrow. Those who are left don't have to approach our funerals hopeless because there will come a day when we will come out of the grave. And then finally, then we will be with our loved ones and the Lord. That's another reason. Fourth, why we don't have to be hopeless. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Catch that language, caught up together with them. There's reunification. There's togetherness again. Hey, we're all back together. Every believer is now together as it were, as we're going to meet the Lord in the air, as we're getting ready to enter the new heavens and the new earth. And the Lord is there and we will always be with them. There will be never any separation between us and the Lord Jesus Christ after that and he says encourage one another with these words i can remember just on a personal note after my mom died and kind of down to this day when i think about all the what-ifs and the could have been sometimes it's easy to get almost hopeless about oh man imagine if this could have gone differently and i've got to sort of reorient my brain and my thinking and my heart to be like hey just falling asleep gonna come a day we'll see her again she'll be way more glorious than i ever saw her so will i and i imagine all of us have to do that beloved when we bury loved ones reorient our thinking and start exercising faith hey what we believe really matters i believe that i will see this person again i will believe i believe that they will rise from the dead again i believe i will rise from the dead again what we believe matters and it will affect how we go through Life, including how we go through death. Death is hard. It's unnatural. It's something we were never meant to experience, right? God did not create human beings to die. We brought that into the equation with our sin. So every time we go to a funeral, it's a difficult thing to experience. But there was one death and there was one resurrection, which changed the course of the world forever and has brought hope. That's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's brought hope to every single funeral. And everyone who is united to him by faith is a conqueror as well over death and will one day rise out of the grave, not for eternal punishment, but for eternal life. Beloved, I can't tell you how incredible it is. And probably most of us, if you're like me, take it for granted. You go to a funeral and you say, I'll see that person again. Not, and it's not a vain hope. Not like, hey, I, I hope I see him again someday, or I'm pretty sure I will. But guaranteed, they're a believer. I'm a believer. I will see them again. This is amazing. That transforms death. Beloved, the world that we live in is filled with darkness. Satan is a horribly wicked individual and all of his demons. And they have done the worst thing in the world. Fill hell up with image bearers of God. And when the world goes to a funeral, they rightly despair. They try and make the best of it. You and I would too, if we were unbelievers. But as a Christian, you and I can approach a funeral. We can go there saying, look, we have hope. You're crying, miss the person dearly, wish that it didn't have to happen this way. But this is the curse of sin. This is this world. But there's going to come a day when this is all over. And what's the great promise of Revelation 21? No more death. It will be amazing. All of that is given to us through Christ. He's the one we worship. He's the one we praise. He's the one who's made all of this possible. If it weren't for him, every funeral we could rightly despair. Let's pray.